Good evening. It's good to see everyone here tonight. I have to just admit something to begin with. I think I live vicariously through all of you. When I went to school um, in Ball State in Indiana, our college football team um, tied for the worst Division I record in college history, 36 straight losses in a row. So I'm glad to be in a town where uh, more exciting things are happening. So I'm sure you'll enjoy the Vanderbilt game. I uh, wish I could be there with you, but I'll just be living through you that excitement because I never got to have that in college. Uh, we are studying Psalm 32. If you want to turn there, obviously it uses the language of blessing to begin with, and we're going to talk about that here as we begin. Because blessing, I have learned being from the Midwest, has some significant connotations in the South. And I want to begin with talking about a few of those. Uh, the first way sometimes you hear the language of blessing is maybe the, the kid, the boy or the girl, or the man or the woman at the fast food restaurant, and they give you your food and they say, have a blessed day. And by that, really what they mean is, I have to say this to you or my manager will get angry and fire me, so here's your greasy hamburger, please be on your way. Next. That's one way to use it. There's also the way sometimes of um, maybe you go to church and there's this elderly woman who knows you and you know her and she's so kind and gentle. And whenever she sees you, she, she kind of grabs your arm or shakes your hand and pats it just like that, like a lot do, and it's really sweet. And she says, have, have a blessed week. And so by that, she means in her code language, I hope you have a, a great week of meeting a lot of great people, having good times and having no bad things happen to you. I, I like that idea of blessing right there. There's also the language of, of blessing that sometimes maybe your parents used when you really messed up, but they're trying to be nice and bless your heart. You ever heard that one? Or maybe there's the last one of people that are really, really, really busy. They don't want to tell you this might be a student or a professor or a friend or a parent or who knows who it could be, but they're listening to you, they're shaking your head, and then you just kind of notice they're getting agitated and they just kind of go, well, blessings, blessings usually with a higher-pitched voice, a little peppiness in it. And by that, they mean, I'm getting tired, this conversation's going too long, but I don't want to be impolite, and I need to leave. Blessings. Now, I use all of those to say that the language of blessings sometimes in, in various cultures, not just the South in particular, but even more generally, the language of, of culture, or the language of blessing somewhat gets diluted in the ways that we use it uh, superficially on an everyday, everyday basis. Blessing, blessing. I'm just going to say that's going to come out. But the way that Scripture uses the language of blessing, all of Scripture in general, and I would say Psalm 32 in particular, is to define it in this way. This is my own definition, but I think it's faithful and kind of drawing together all the threads that Scripture would present. And blessing is this. The deep joy of possessing and experiencing the permanent and passionate favor of God. Isn't that a little bit deeper than uh, the parent or the person who's getting tired listening to you or the kid at the fast food restaurant? The deep joy of possessing and experiencing the permanent and passionate favor of God in your life. That's the kind of blessing I think all of our hearts long for. And yet one of the things that Scripture is also adamant about is that we often seek for little bee blessings instead. And those little bee blessings are kind of horizontal things. Uh, someone, something, some experience that you're trying to have to, to make you feel alive, to make you feel whole, satisfied, complete, whatever it is. You're looking to that thing apart from God to experience some kind of of blessing 
Or the one I struggle more often with is not, in a sense, only seeking through little bee blessings. It's not feeling like I could ever be blessed at all because of shame. The shame, just this sense of, of deep inward being flawed and permanently unlovable. And surely there's no one that could show me that kind of person permanent and passionate favor. Psalm 32 says otherwise. It shows us not only what blessing is, but it also shows you and I who that blessing belongs to. That blessing of deep joy, of knowing, of possessing, and of experiencing the permanent and passionate favor of God. Uh, So let me just remind us one more time of uh, the scripture that Elijah just read, and it's this. This is what it says, Psalm 32. It's one of my favorite passages in all of scripture. Blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven. Uh, blessed, or whose sin is covered. Blessed is the one whose iniquity the Lord does not count against him. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. It's the word of God. Let me pray for us as we begin. Father, we thank you for your word. Pray that in and through it, you would be the one by your spirit to speak powerfully. And you really would this evening. Bless our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Let me begin with saying, just kind of giving you a road map of where we're going to go tonight. And the first place that we're going to go is who are the ones that are going to be blessed? That's the first thing we're going to look at. The second thing we're going to look at is... Uh, Who is the blesser? What is God's heart like? And then lastly, we're going to look at what's the response of our hearts when God blesses us in this way. So let's, let's think of, first of all, who are the ones that God blesses? And we can see this all throughout this psalm, uh, but let me just begin with a core condition of our hearts. This is kind of the default DNA of, I think, what we're born into the world thinking. And it's this, whether it be with other human beings, but especially with God, a core thought is acceptance only comes by performance. Acceptance only comes by performance. To the degree that we perform, that's the degree that we will be accepted by other people or by God. I think this is humorously illustrated in a story I really enjoy by Johns Hopkins University. Now, some of you are freshmen. You just went through this process not too long ago. All of you went through this process at some point. But applying to a school that you really wanted to get into, UGA, go dogs. all right? So you have this university that you really want to get into. You apply. You tell them about all the tests that you've taken, the work that you've done, the papers that you've written, all the ways that you've practiced, all the ways that you perform, not only in school, but also in extracurricular activities. You might exhaust yourself in performing in order to be accepted by the school of your choice. That's exactly what these students did at Johns Hopkins University. And so one Friday afternoon, they get the email they were waiting for, and the title that it said as they brought it up on their phone was, Embrace the Yes. And so they open the email and it says, welcome to the John Hopkins University family. We're glad to welcome you into the new semester that's coming very soon. Below you'll find a link to all the things you'll need for your arrival, etc., etc., etc. Well, you can just wonder what they did. I'd be curious what you did when you found out you were getting into UGA. They put it up on social media. They told all their friends. They called their parents. They called all kinds of people to say, this is just what happened. I've been accepted 
They threw parties. Their parents called their cousins and their second cousins and their fifth cousins and all kinds of stuff like that. And then on Sunday, they got one more email by the dean of admissions, 300 students. Sorry, there was a technical glitch. Your application has been rejected. Hope you have a nice day. You can just imagine how they felt. At one point, their performance was enough. And another point, they realized the performance was not enough. I wonder if sometimes that deep mentality translates into our hearts where we say, there's some times where God, he accepts us. And then something happens. He sees us do something, think something, or be something. And he, we're afraid we'll get a message from him that says, actually, I was wrong. You are not accepted by me. So that's kind of the default mentality of our hearts. And we tend to, in light of that, think, well, who are the ones that God blesses? Well, God blesses the, the college students who are at their dorm when it's 9 or 10 or 11 o'clock at night, or for some of you, 1 or 2 in the morning, and you want to watch a movie. Of course, the only movies you will watch are on the Hallmark Channel. It's the only ones you're ever going to watch. They're so pure and good and terrible and awful. Anyway, did not say that. Or you're the one that always says, yes, sir, and yes, ma'am, and always says thankful, and it's beautiful. And anytime the church doors are open, you are there. Anytime someone's singing a song, you're singing it. You're the person who never tries to mess up. You're always trying to be faithful and devoted and everything else. It really is acceptance by performance, but it's almost like this, here's this display of who we think is the kind of person maximally religious, minimally rebellious. That's the person God blesses. But here's the wonderful thing about Psalm 32. Psalm 32 comes into that nice little thought world in our heart and explodes it and says that God's grace doesn't operate that way, that acceptance runs by performance. It's actually the other way around. It is acceptance by performance, but it's not yours. It's Christ's. And we'll see that here in just a while. But let me mention this. Let's see the really the people uh, that the Lord blesses. You notice the first language that he uses here is transgression. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. What is transgression? Transgression, in a sense, is the most active, energetic, and intentional aspect of sin. Transgression is seeing a line that says, do not cross, and you just go like this, and you cross it. Transgression is seeing a sign that says, no trespassing, and you walk right in. Trespassing is seeing a sign that says, no speeding, and you fly right past 100 miles an hour. Trespassing is looking at God's law and saying, whether you do it in your actions or even in your heart, I just don't care. I'm doing it anyway. It's what I want. That's transgression. And this psalm says it's only to people who have that kind of transgression in their heart that are blessed. That's the one to whom transgression or blessing belongs. And that person was David. And David's telling that to invite us into the blessing of God. His deep joy of possessing and experiencing the permanent, passionate favor of God despite the transgression he had committed. The second thing you'll notice is he also mentions the language of sin. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Sin is a missing of the mark, 
a missing of the mark in the way that we love God. Scripture calls us to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and none of us ever does that at all perfectly. So in a sense, there's always this condition called sin that keeps us from missing or from keeping the mark or from hitting it, and we fall short, not just in the way we love God, but in the way we love other people. Just one minute of honest reflection shows how poorly we really deeply love others. Usually lives marked more by selfishness uh, than selflessness. I speak that from personal experience and knowing my own heart. But it's only those, David is saying, who have sin in their heart, that missing of the mark, that this blessing belongs to. This deep joy of possessing and experiencing the permanent and passionate favor of God only belongs not only to those with transgressions, but also with sin. Those are the ones to whom God's favor, blessing, belong. And then lastly, you also see it mentions iniquity. Blessed is the man in verse 2 who's, uh, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Iniquity is what Dorothy Sayers calls one of my favorite authors. She says, iniquity is the deep interior dislocation of the soul. It's the wreckage of the interior infrastructure of my heart and yours because of Adam's fall in the garden that makes it so that our hearts twist God's truth and it distorts our desires. That's iniquity. It's bentness away from God. And David is saying to those with iniquity in their hearts, the blessing of God can belong. The deep joy of possessing, experiencing God's permanent, passionate favor in your life. Some of you know the name Martin Luther, one of the reformers uh, in the 15th century. Excuse me, 16th. And he was uh, counseling a friend who was struggling with sin in his heart and didn't know what to do. And, and Luther wrote him a letter and he said, Come over to us, join us, join our community. Because we here are real, true, genuine, hard-boiled sinners. And he's saying that because he's not saying God doesn't love sin. He doesn't. But he blesses sinners. Not those who've been accepted because they've performed. But those who've looked to Christ for their hope. So David in this psalm is not saying, run and hide. God's coming. What he is saying is if you have the sin in your heart of always seeking the little b blessings of someone, something, or some experience to give you life and joy and satisfaction and meaning, what he's saying is there's pleasure in that sometimes. Hebrews 11 will say that, but it doesn't last it disappoints you. Eventually, it, it corrodes, corrupts, and, and crushes your heart. So for those seeking for the little bee blessing out there, he's saying there's more, and it comes from up there, from the Lord. For those who struggle with shame, like I have and continue to do, what he's saying is he knows that soul-shattering shame in our hearts that make us not expect to ever know what blessing means. And what he's saying is there's hope. Let me tell you 
about a God who knows all about you on the outside and on the inside, and he still moves towards you to bless you. Those are the ones to whom God looks to bless. David is joyfully declaring to us tonight in Psalm 32, in the Spirit through Psalm 32. So those are the ones to whom God blesses. Let's look next at the God the heart of the God who blesses. Now, one of the things that scripture will liken God's law to, it is good and holy, but it at times will liken God's law uh, to a caregiver uh, or to a husband. We see this in Galatians chapter four, Romans chapter seven. And can you imagine a caregiver that every time you do something says this, not enough. And every time you do something else says, not good enough. Not, doesn't measure up. Shouldn't have done that. Can you imagine hearing that with every thought you had, everything that you did, every aspect of your heart, every day the law critiques and ultimately the law condemns. And it says if there's sin, iniquity, transgression, critique, condemnation. But God's heart is holy and just. The law is an aspect of his holiness and justice, but at the same time, God is also extravagantly merciful. And that's why David wrote this psalm. It's not only to tell us about God's mercy, but to invite me and you into that mercy to experience that blessing, that favor of God. Paul will say in Romans chapter 4 that this psalm, written by David, was pointing centuries before to the person and work of Christ. And here's some of the things that David says God's heart is all about in this psalm. The first one is this, that in Christ, your sins are carried away. In Christ, your sins are carried away. That is God's heart. Bring your sin to me and I will carry it away. Where do I get that? In the first verse, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. Forgiven is a wonderful translation. I'm not meaning to take away from that, but literally it means carried away. Likening us back to the book of Leviticus when you confessed your sins and you laid your hand on a goat and it went into the wilderness. It was the sacrificial lamb, as it were. It was the scapegoat. You put your sins on that, it was transferred to the sacrificial animal and it went away into the wilderness never to be seen again. It was an image of sin being carried away from you. God is saying, David is saying through this psalm, and God through him is saying, bring your sin to me. Don't try to deal with it on your own. Don't try to manage it on your own. Bring it to me. I'll carry it away. I love October. It reminds me when I was a a kid, a little bit younger than you guys, don't do this. I would steal people's um, pumpkins on their front porch, and then I would drive 80 miles an hour with my friends and throw it at signs, and they'd explode. And I thought that was the coolest thing in the world, because I'm a dude, I guess. Um, anyway, NASA scientists, some of you guys have heard this around Thanksgiving, they take the pumpkins and they try to chunk them as far as possible. Anybody ever seen that, pumpkin chunking? All right. <laughs> NASA scientists, as advanced as they are, can only find a way when they're using pneumatics to shoot a pumpkin 1.2 miles. Let me tell you the distance of 1.2 miles. I looked it up this afternoon for your listening pleasure. It's from here all the way to five points on millage, 1.2 miles. They can chunk a pumpkin that far. That's pretty good. It's further than I could throw one, so have at it, NASA scientists. God says, if you bring your sin to me, 
I'll carry it, not 1.2 miles. I'll carry it as far as the east is from the west. That's what it says in Psalm 103. In Christ, God carries away your sin. That's the heart of God. David will also say not only that in Christ does God carry away your sin, but also that God covers it over. You can see this in these verses as well in verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. In other words, sin has this, in a sense, stench about it, this ugliness about it that, that God can't even look at. And when we alone are covered in it, there's no communion, there's no fellowship. Something must be done. And so what happened in the Old Testament was that they would, they would um, have a sacrifice and its blood would be poured on the mercy seat and it would cover the mercy seat so that all God saw was, was the blood and he could draw near, he could have fellowship, they could have communion with God. And one of the things that the New Testament says is that it's the blood, and Peter would say, listen, the precious blood of Christ that covers over your sin. In some ways, it's not as if God is sitting there saying, I can't wait to expose you as a fraud, to expose all of your sin and show you who you really are. In my worst moments, I think that's what God is like. But Psalm 32 says, if you come to me and uncover your sin, I'll cover it with the blood of my son in order to draw near you in order that you would experience and possess my permanent and passionate favor in your life. Not only that, you'll notice, lastly, that not, God doesn't only carry away and cover over our sin, but he also counts us righteous. You can see this in verse 2. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Well, iniquity must be counted. God is holy and just and true and righteous. Paul says in Romans 4 that iniquity was counted against Christ. That he was cursed for our iniquity. It was counted against. It wasn't counted against you. It was counted against him at Calvary. And not only is our sin given to him, but his perfect record of righteousness His perfect obedience to the Father, listen, is reckoned to your account. It's given to you as a free gift, Paul says, to be received by faith. And so so this psalm invites us to wonder, what sin is there in my life that needs to be brought to God? What transgression is there in, in your life that needs to be handed over so that he can carry it away? What iniquity is there that needs to be covered over? Even tonight, God says, there's something percolating in your mind and heart. God's saying, bring it to me. I'll carry it away. Cover it over in the blood of my son. And if you have faith, I'll remind you that you're counted righteous in Christ. And if you just now, for the first time, are reaching out in faith, it's, I declare you righteous in Christ, the Father says. Isn't that amazing? That not only does God bless those that we don't think would be blessed, sinners, transgressors, those with iniquity, but the heart of God is to to cover over, to carry away. 
and to count ye righteous in Christ, all so that we can experience the blessing of God, the deep joy, the deep joy of possessing and experiencing his permanent and passionate favor in your heart. So lastly, what's the response? What's the big deal? How should our hearts respond to this blessing? God who blesses those that we don't necessarily think would get it, receive it, sinners like David, like us, we see his heart and covering over, counting us righteous in Christ and carrying it all away. What's our response? Here's the first one. It's an unpopular topic nowadays, but repentance. Repentance is, is not only a confessing of sin, but it's a, it's a turning away from it. It's saying, here's these little B blessings. I've sought life apart from you, joy apart from you, satisfaction, meaning, identity, all apart from you. And I turn from it to you. So take that sin, cover it over, carry it away. Remind me I'm counted righteous in Christ. Listen, wrong repentance looks like this. I probably struggled with this for about seven, eight years, even as a pastor. Wrong repentance looks like this. It sees God as an angry judge or policeman just waiting to take you down. And he might have mercy if you're miserable enough. If I can just make myself feel bad enough, maybe God will be merciful. God's merciful if you are miserable enough. Paul says that kind of repentance leads to death. The gospel kind of repentance is this. I've been seeking these lower B blessings apart from God. I'm turning from them, not because God might have mercy, but because in the gospel, I have the certainty that he will. He will show mercy. Is there something tonight that you need to repent of? Maybe not just something that you're doing, but an action or an attitude of your heart that you need to bring to the Lord. And not because he might be merciful if you're just miserable enough about it, but but you're certain that in Christ, he will show you mercy tonight. Not just that we live repentantly, but also that we live joyfully. We live absolutely joyfully. That's one of the things in in Psalm 51. Ben and I were talking this uh, at a meeting here recently. In Psalm 51, he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. It's like he's still in the throes of grief and sorrow and repentance and just in this whirlpool of what's going on and and where's God? I'm, I'm asking for mercy. But in this Psalm, he's convinced I've experienced God is merciful. I want to tell everybody about it. And you'll notice at the very end of the Psalm, he says, Read Rejoice and be glad, you righteous. And notice, not righteous in ourselves, only in Christ. Rejoice and be glad, you righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. That's why one of the wonderful things about the gospel is it gives you a deep joy that no circumstance in this world can touch. It doesn't mean we're always going to have a smile on our face and be singing out of our hearts. We're going to experience sorrow and pain and grief. But even deeper than that is the solid joy. God has carried away my sin. God has counted me righteous in Christ and covered it over, and I am alive. So we not only live repentantly, but we also live joyfully. And last, we live, and I'll say this, transparently. 
the thing that the psalm says, and, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. It's kind of a unique, uh, what, what's he mean there? What's going on? In some ways, I, I envision it like this. David was a king. You can imagine in some way he had sinned. He, that's why he's writing this psalm. And he goes to his kind of kingly council, a, a bunch of people, maybe around a, a round table. I don't know what it looked like. And he can say, I've, I've really sinned. I've experienced God's mercy. But I want to tell all the people about how I sinned a lot. And can you imagine the council being like, I don't think that's good. You have an image to protect. You're the king. Let me mention an illustration to you. I'll close with this. This shows how old I am. Uh, in the late 1980s. Oh boy, we're going way back, okay? Uh, a tennis player by the name of Andre Agassi. Maybe some of you know him, maybe not. But he was a really famous a tennis player won tons of championships, but he was the bad boy. He was the bad boy. He was the King David of tennis, okay? But he had a, he had a, a commercial series with Canon cameras, and the whole tag phrase was, image is everything. Image is everything. And let me just say, that's kind of tattooed on all of our hearts, because to some extent we believe that. I know as a guy, I can't speak um, for women, but I think as a guy, uh, we just want to come across as cool, competent, and in control. Just keep that facade up, okay? Or maybe you want to look religious and righteous, or, or who knows what the image is that you want to put up. But notice what happens. He's playing the 1990 French Open against someone he should very easily beat. The night before, now keep in mind, he does all these commercials, images, everything, and each time he does it, he puts his hand in his hair like this, Okay? I'm not as good looking as Agassiz, but one day. So before the match, he's in the shower before the match, and he's washing his hair with his conditioner. He put the wrong conditioner in his hair. He was bald. It was actually a wig. And it started to destroy and unravel his wig. And he says this, what should I... What would they say if they knew I've been wearing a hairpiece this whole time? This is in his autobiography. The whole world would be laughing at me. Warming up before the match, I pray, not for a win, but for my hairpiece to stay on. My tenuous hairpiece has me catatonic. Whether or not it's slipping, I imagine it's slipping. With every lunge, every leap, I picture it landing on the clay like a hawk my father shot from the sky. I can picture millions of people suddenly leaning closer to their TVs, turning to each other in dozens of languages and dialects, saying some version of, did Andre Agassi's hair just fall off? A match he should have easily won, he lost. And he says this. He was looking for a place where he would not feel shame. I sit in the locker room, head bowed, head bowed imagining what the hundreds of columnists and headline writers will say. I can hear them now. Image is everything. Agassi is nothing. How much energy did Agassi put into keeping up an image? How much energy had David put up to keeping up an image of a good king and a great guy? But when he finally experiences the gospel, it doesn't just enable him to live repentantly, even joyfully. He finally just took off the facade. He finally put down the front. And he said, I'm a king. I've got sin in my heart. I've got iniquity in my heart. There's been transgression in my life. But God has carried it away. He's covered it over. And he's counted me righteous in Christ.
And I want you to know about that. Have you been keeping up a front at all? Maybe it's just going to church, going to RUF, whatever it is. Is there that real aspect of knowing Christ and experiencing and possessing his permanent and passionate favor towards you? David isn't simply declaring this truth. But he's even inviting all of us tonight deeper into that truth, whether we know Christ or not. May God bless your heart. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you that you bless the ones we wouldn't expect, sinners. Thank you that you have a heart that carries away our sin, covers it over. You count us righteous in Christ. Give us the power, the energy by the Holy Spirit to live joyfully, repentantly, and transparently. And would you bless our hearts tonight as we either go back to our dorms, back to our apartments, our houses, to the library, wherever we're going. Would you do just that? Bless our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.